Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, beginning at verse 14 and reading through verse 28. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's sin, and then for the people the peoples for the sins he did for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Thus far, God's reading, the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing to it. In conjunction with it, I'd like to read to you from the Heidelberg Catechism, page 13, in the back of the Psalter Hymnal, Lord's Day 6, question and answer 16 through 19. Lord's Day 6, page 13. Why must He be truly human and truly righteous? God's justice demands it. Man has sinned, man must pay for his sin, but a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he be also true God, so that by the power of his divinity he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life? And who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time truly human and truly righteous? Our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us to set us completely free and to make us right with God. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and portrayed it by the sacrifice, sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally he fulfilled it through his own dear son. Beloved of the Lord, we have been considering together the Christian's great comfort, 
that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is fully satisfied for all our sins with his precious blood and sets us free from the tyranny of the devil, who watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads except it be whose will. And uh, Christ, by his Spirit, has uh, made us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is indeed a great comfort. And the Catechism asks us what we need to know to enjoy that comfort. We need to know how great our sin and misery are. We need to know how to be delivered from that sin. And we need to know how to show ourselves thankful for the great deliverance that has been given to us. In recent weeks, we have considered how great our sin and misery are. And last Sunday evening, we began to consider how we are delivered from that sin. Delivered uh, through the satisfaction of God's righteous demands. Only if the demands of the law are satisfied can our sins be forgiven. Well, who can deliver us from the wrath of God? Who can save us? Well, it must be someone who is truly human, perfectly righteous, and divine. That was what we considered last Sunday evening. But now the Catechism wants to explore that further and ask, why? Why must he be fully human? Why must he be perfectly righteous? Why must he be divine? What, uh, why does our Savior need to be these things? And how do we find such a Savior? Where do we find such a Savior? Uh, that is the question that is before us this evening. And we see that indeed Jesus who the Scripture presents as our Savior, is the perfect mediator because, because he is our brother, because he is truly righteous, and because he is fully God. He's our brother. He's one of us. Uh, he came to be made like us in every way, sin accepted. God's justice requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. God's not going to punish uh, some animal for our sins, even though he instituted animal sacrifice. Those sacrifices were ceremonial. They did not actually take away the sins. They were effective in that they looked forward to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as people put their faith in what God would uh, put their faith in what they represented and in who they pointed to, indeed their sins were forgiven. But the animal sacrifices themselves could not take away sin. We read last week in Hebrews chapter 2, Since the children have flesh and blood, He, too, shared in their humanity. It is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In that same chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus is said to be of the same family and not ashamed to call us brothers because, indeed, he was made like us. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 25, Moses speaks of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer was a near relative. The default kinsman redeemer was usually a brother, but if there was no brother, then it was an uncle or a cousin. The nearest male relative was uh, designated the one to get you out of a jam if you got yourself into a financial jam or uh, were uh, captured by an enemy army and taken prisoner and so forth. Uh, If you were murdered, it was the kinsman's redeemer to avenge your murder. Uh, God appointed in Israel people who were to 
save their fellow Israelites. And the one who did the saving, the the Redeemer, was a kinsman. And so when Christ comes to save us, he is made one of us. He's made part of our family. Therefore, we affirm and confess concerning Jesus that his humanity was no mere appearance. He was conceived by the Virgin Mary. He was uh, not only conceived in her, but conceived by her. Uh, One of the evidences of his full humanity is seen that when Jesus, uh, as an adult, came back to visit his hometown after he had performed miracles and gained a reputation elsewhere, he came back to his own town. But uh, the people wouldn't listen to him because they said... uh, who does he think he is? You know, he's just Joseph's son. Uh, he was uh, uh, no different than anybody else in that town. Why should they afford a respect to him? Uh, you know, the old proverb, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Well, uh, Jesus was so ordinary, so ordinarily human uh, growing up in that town that they never recognized him as anything else but human. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He appeared human because he was human. John's Gospel, the first chapter, a familiar passage, speaks of the humanity of Jesus, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John the Baptist says of Jesus, he is a man, a man comes after me who has surpassed me. He doesn't say a God has comes after me. He says a man has come after me who surpasses me. And uh, again, uh, John the Apostle in his epistle says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. This, the whole matter of the incarnation, of the taking on of human flesh, became a, a test by which you could uh, discern whether a person was a true prophet or not. There were those in the first century, in the lifetime of the apostles, who were uh, what are called Gnostics. Uh, That is, uh, people who believe that salvation is by gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. And uh, they felt that uh, Jesus had uh, given the appearance of a human being. He had come down to earth and appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. A a true God would never sully himself or demean himself by uh, taking on human flesh. They thought all human flesh was uh, corrupt and so forth, and uh, but he he just had the appearance of it, and his sole purpose in coming was to teach us, to teach us truth, to give us knowledge, and it's it's the knowledge that will save you, and uh, so they denied the incarnation, and uh, John the uh, apostle says, well, if you hear people doing that, you know that's that's the spirit of the antichrist, that's. They're against Christ. They're not for him. The true Christian affirms that Christ, that God has come in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is one reason why Jesus is such a perfect Savior. He can stand in our place because he is one of us. But in order to stand in our place and offer a perfect sacrifice, he himself has to be perfect. An unrighteous man, a sinner... 
cannot save other sinners. His own sin disqualifies him. He has to pay for his own sins. Uh, He can't uh, pay for the sins of others. This was uh, symbolically represented in the Old Testament uh, system where the priests would first have to offer sacrifices for themselves to make themselves ceremonially clean. And then quick before that ceremonial uncleanness wore off, then they could offer sacrifices for others. But, of course, the practice had to be done over and over again because it was all symbolic. It was all ceremonial. It it was all designed to point to something better to come. And we read of that in Hebrews chapter 7 in our text. Unlike the other high priests... He does not need to offer sacrifice day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for the sins once for all. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which comes after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus indeed is the perfect one. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by a human father, and by the miracle of virgin conception under the power of the Holy Spirit, he did not receive a corrupt human nature, but a perfect human nature. And uh, therefore he is righteous. Peter in his epistle, first epistle, chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous. He is righteous, we're the unrighteous, he died for us, and uh, therefore Scripture is indeed affirming affirming that he is the righteous one. Again, in Romans 5, uh, contrasting the first Adam with Christ and uh, uh, Adam's disobedience with Christ's obedience. It says in Romans 5, 19, by one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Indeed, Christ is righteous. So Christ comes as one of us. He comes as sinless so that he can offer a perfect sacrifice. But if he is only a sinless human being, even then he can't help us. Psalm 49 says, No man can ransom another, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That's referring to the fact that God's wrath against sin is infinite. And a finite human being, even a perfect finite human being, doesn't have the strength to endure infinite wrath. And so we need a Savior who is not only one of us, a brother, a a fellow human being, not only one who is uh, truly righteous, but he also has to have divine strength. And in order to have divine strength, he has to be divine. He has to be God. Uh, By the strength of his divinity, he is able to bear up under the infinite wrath of God and uh, endure that wrath completely so that at the end of three black hours he can say it is finished. I often uh, in catechism class with uh, catechism students will uh, illustrate this truth with newspaper and a brick and uh, uh, hold out a piece of newspaper uh, and ask 
someone to drop a brick or a rock or whatever heavy is at hand onto the newspaper. And, of course, if I'm holding it up uh, about uh, waist high or so, and they drop it from maybe the height of my head onto the paper, the paper rips apart and is uh, no longer a nice sheet of paper anymore. Uh, it's, uh, it's ripped and torn and ruined. But if I then lay the paper on the floor, a sheet of newspaper on the floor, particularly upon a concrete floor, and then drop something on it, well, the paper gets dented, but it doesn't get ripped because the strength of the floor undergirds the paper. And by the strength of the floor, the paper is able to bear the weight of the, the object, the heavy object that was dropped on it. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He is human. He is sinless. But he is also divine, divine so that he is able to, in his humanity, bear the weight of God's uh, infinite wrath. The scriptures are clear that indeed Jesus is divine. Uh, one of my favorite texts is that uh, found it in John's Gospel where uh, Doubting Thomas, although he's unfairly called Doubting Thomas because all the disciples doubted at first, but uh, when he finally is convinced, he uh, says to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't reprove him. He doesn't uh, stop him from calling him God, even as throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, many people uh, gave him divine honor, and he accepted that divine honor. Uh, there, <coughs> God is our Savior. There are passages in the Old Testament, for example, that say, uh, Isaiah 43, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your servant. I am the Lord, and beside me... There is no Savior. There's only one Savior, says the Bible, and it's the Lord. It's, uh, that word Lord is all in caps, which means it stands for the Hebrew word Yahweh, sometimes translated Jehovah. I, the Lord, Yahweh, I, Jehovah, I am your God. I'm the only God, and I'm the only Savior. And so when Jesus is called Lord and Savior, we're told that this is the same God, <laughs> the same God of the Old Testament who said, I am he and there is no other. That is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45, verse 21, There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And again, Psalm 49, verse 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of death. God will ransom my soul. Who ransomed our soul? Jesus did. Jesus is God, for he is the one who helps us. You know, whenever the humanity of Christ is challenged or whenever the sinlessness of Christ is challenged or whenever the divinity of Christ is challenged, and sadly, in the last 2,000 years, there have been many heresies, uh, many heretical teachers who have challenged uh, one or all of these points. But whenever it happens, it always uh, follows that the, the resulting religion that these people promote is a religion of self-salvation. If he's not really one of us, but simply a teacher telling us what to do, then we have to save ourselves by doing whatever he says to do. And I hope that you have lived long enough to know that there's nothing that we can do to atone for our sins. Our sins are great and many. They increase every day. 
and uh, uh, the wages of sin is death. And once uh, you die for your sins, there is no coming back from it because uh, we aren't, uh, we don't have a divine nature. When you and I fall under infinite wrath, it crushes us eternally. That's why uh, hell is forever because God's wrath is infinite. If uh, Christ is uh, not. Uh, divine, then again, he doesn't have the strength to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and we are again left to our own resources, of which we have none. And so we uh, we confess that that we have to believe this. You know, the, the Athanasian Creed says, uh, this is the Catholic, uh, meaning universal faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. It says that right after affirming these truths that we've just considered, the, the humanity and uh, righteousness and divinity of Jesus Christ. Unless you believe these things, you can't be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that, that everyone has a perfect understanding of these truths. Indeed, they are uh, truths that are uh, very deep and, and difficult to understand. How does God become a man? Uh, I don't know how that happens. I know uh, that it does happen, that uh, the Holy Spirit did perform a miracle. But what that miracle is and how to explain it, well, it's, it's a mystery. Timothy uh, says, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. This indeed is something that defies uh, our uh, full comprehension. But when the, comp- when the confession says you have to believe this to be saved, what it's saying is anyone who, who hears this and then says, no, I reject it, <laughs> I, I can't accept that, and, and denies the humanity of Christ or denies the divinity of Christ or denies his righteousness, uh, that person by such a denial shows that they do not have true and saving faith. Now, the Catechism says, how do we come to know that Jesus is the perfect mediator? Well, we know that because the Bible tells us so. You know, at the end of Luke's Gospel in Luke 24, verse 27, it says, in beginning with Moses, and that's Genesis, Exodus, the first five books of the Bible, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. At the time that Jesus said that, the New Testament hadn't been written. The scriptures was simply what we know as the Old Testament. And he says, beginning with Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, and then all the prophetic books that were written by everybody else, he shows them how they all speak about him. In the passage that we read from Hebrews chapter 7, it speaks of a Melchizedek, the priest of God, king of Salem, priest of God, who met Abraham when Abraham came back from rescuing Lot, and uh, Abraham gave a tithe of all that he had to Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears out of nowhere. We don't know his lineage. 
We don't know what happened to him afterward. It's as if he just is there and has always been there. He has the appearance of being a priest forever because we don't know his story. We just know that he's there on the spot and for all we know, you know, he, he, he never disappears. Well, uh, that, that lack of a genealogy and that lack of an obituary uh, gives a symbol of eternity, not a, not a real eternity, but a symbol of it. And uh, that the Bible plays on that and says, now, that's the kind of priesthood Jesus has. And uh, God in the Psalms swears an oath that you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a priest greater than the priests of Judah. Jesus doesn't come from the tribe of Judah. The law appointed, uh, or Levi even, uh, uh, appointed the Levites uh, to be the priests. Uh, But those are the priests who were weak, who had to offer sacrifices again and again for themselves and then for the people and repeat it over and over again. But Jesus is a perfect sacrifice. And so uh, beginning in the Old Testament, in the book of Moses uh, with Melchizedek, but you can go back already to the first redemptive promise that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Uh, That promise is a promise of the gospel that points to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman and Jesus Christ is the I in I will put enmity between you and the serpent and your seed and her seed. Uh, The seed of the woman is human. The eye is divine, and uh, human and divine work together in that first redemptive promise to bring back human beings to God's side. So Jesus could say to his disciples just before his ascension, you know, the whole Bible, it's about me. (laughs) It's all pointing to me. All All the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to me. Every prophet, priest, and king was a a prophet, priest, and king whose office foreshadowed my uh, kingship and my priesthood and um, uh, my uh, prophetic uh, ministry. It's all about me. And because Jesus uh, is uh, in all of Scripture, uh, we can be sure that indeed he is the perfect mediator. Indeed, the perfect mediator who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him uh, come to God through him. Hebrews 7 verse 25 again. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know this past week I heard a news item about a 77 year old man who died in prison uh, serving a life sentence for war crimes. He was a member of the Khmer Rouge, the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia from 1975 to 1979. He uh, served uh, Pol Pot as a prison superintendent of the main prison in Cambodia. And he was charged with being responsible for the torture and death of 16,000 prisoners who went through his prison. When the Khmer Rouge lost power in 1979, this prison superintendent uh, changed his name and went into hiding. 
But a few years later, he became a Christian and decided that he needed to do something to make up for all the evil that he had done. So he went to work for World Vision in his own country of Cambodia, although working under assumed name, a different name. Nevertheless, he was taking his life in his hands by going back to the country where he had committed all his crimes. But he worked for a few years for World Vision and then was recognized and arrested and went on trial, was charged with the torture and murder of 16,000 people. He didn't deny the charge. He confessed openly that he was responsible for that great and heinous crime. He showed great remorse. He humbly apologized to widows and to orphans and said he was ready to accept whatever punishment that the court would give to him, even suggesting that he deserved to be stoned for what he had done. Well, the court was impressed with his remorse and his repentance and gave him a fairly light sentence of, I think, 15 or 20 years in prison. There was an outcry from his victims, and then the sentence was changed to life imprisonment, and indeed, he did die in prison this past Wednesday. Now, let me ask you, do you think that the death of Christ is sufficient to pay for the sins of a man who is responsible for the torture and murder of 16,000 people? Is Christ's sacrifice sufficient to pay for that? Some might think, you know, well, I've committed a lot of sins in my life, but uh, I've never murdered anybody. And, and so I, I think that, yes, Christ, Christ's death is sufficient for my sins. But for a man like that who's committed 16,000 tortures and murders, I don't know. Well, I can't verify 100% that this man's conversion was genuine. It gives every appearance of a genuine conversion. But if indeed it is a genuine conversion, then we're told in Hebrews 7 verse 25 that because Jesus is so perfect a Savior, fully human, perfectly righteous, and fully divine, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. I believe that indeed what Christ endured on the cross is sufficient not only to pay for the torture and murder of 16,000, but for the, the murder of every human being who has ever been murdered, for the torture of every human being who has ever been tortured. His death on the cross, in, he endured infinite wrath, and he endured it, he endured, endured it fully and completely. We confess in the canons of Dort that his death is sufficient, sufficient, to pay for the sins of the whole world. We also go on to say that it is efficient in paying for the sins of the elect. But there's nothing, nothing about what Christ did that says there's, there's, there's limits to who he can save. There's limits to what he can pay for because he only endured enough for a certain kind of people. But the really bad people, well, he didn't endure enough. No, there are no limits on what Christ paid for. 
Uh, he paid for uh, sufficiently to pay for the sins of, of people like this uh, prison superintendent uh, who uh, readily confessed his sins and put his faith in Jesus Christ. And he is, uh, Christ is uh, sufficient to pay for your sins. There is no amount of sin. There is no depth of despair. There is no uh, uh, enemy that he cannot save us from. Uh, when it says he is able to save to the uttermost, that means he's able to save you from your greatest enemy, which is death. This pandemic virus uh, threatens death, uh, perhaps not as badly as some uh, would report uh, in the news. But nonetheless, there are thousands of people who are dying of this virus. It is an enemy. And Jesus is able to deliver us even from that. Not by uh, only making us well again, but even if we die from the virus, he is able to deliver us from it through the resurrection. That's what it means to have a perfect Savior, one who saves us from everything. Praise God that we have indeed such a Savior in Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you that he is the seed of the woman, and we thank you that he is the divine promiser who promises to bring us back to your side. We thank you that he is the greater Melchizedek, the greater King David, the greater Aaronic uh, priest. We, we thank you, Father, that, that he indeed fulfills all the promises and persons of the Old Testament uh, who pointed to him, and that he is now able as the perfect Savior to save us to the uttermost as we come to you through him. We pray, Father, that you would indeed teach us to approach you only through him, and uh, so that we might indeed have that assurance that uh, you will save us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.